Hello, it is Adrian Lawrence and welcome into the conversation. I'm in Sacramento right now where it is 107 degrees today. It's absolutely crazy. You know, the growing impact right now of the climate emergency is very real. Unfortunately, I have someone here to talk with us about it, and that's a senior reporter for The Guardian, Nina Lacani. Thank you so much for joining us, Nina. You're welcome. Hi. All right, so it has been getting hotter and hotter, and it is very, very scary, as well as we're seeing these historic level floods coming through, as well as I just heard about a report in California about some kind of epic flood of Noah in the Ark kind of type proportions. There is just so much going on. Where should we begin? I mean, we could literally begin everywhere, and I think that's the point that, you know, extreme weather, um, you know, caused by global heating is happening everywhere and anywhere. It's becoming increasingly unpredictable. That's the predictable part of it, you know, from, you know, um, deadly heat waves in Canada to the UK where I'm from to, to you know, to, to wildfires in, in England. I mean, we've never had a wildfire before and now we've got, you know, huge wildfires happening in, 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 in England. Um, to California to flooding. I'm in I'm in Virginia right now, and there's been emergency, you know, disasters called its last couple of days because of flooding in the in the mountains. So yeah, I mean, it's really stick a pin anywhere in the globe, and you're probably going to have some climate related extreme weather events happening. It is, and it's very, very um, bothersome, scary. The thing is, is that we're not necessarily made for this kind of heat. And also some of us are definitely behind when it comes to adapting to it, whether it's having air conditioning units, which I understand they are definitely struggling with when it comes to being across the pond and the heat that they're experiencing. Also, I know it must be hot in Phoenix. You had just covered that in a piece recently. What are people doing? So Phoenix is interesting. So I've spent a month in Phoenix over June and July, and I chose to go there because Phoenix is America's hottest city. It's also its deadliest city from extreme heat um, over to 2020 and 2021, just in Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located. More than 600 people died because of extreme heat. And this year, they're on track to beat that number, that you know, that inglorious record of you know of death. So, um, Phoenix is America's fifth largest city because of air conditioning. When air conditioning became available cheaply in the 1950s, that's when this desert city started to grow. But you know, the expansion has been so like the development has been unchecked, really. So just you know, we created this. They've created this sprawling heat island, you know, um, and. So while most people have air conditioning in Phoenix, um, not every, you know, there is a significant minority that don't, and actually um, a significant minority that can't afford to run their air conditioning, right? Or if their air conditioning breaks, they can't afford to fix it. I mean, also just, you know, that that is a city like many cities in the West that is experiencing like exponential growth when it comes to the homeless population when it comes to substance misuse, which are huge sort of, you know, risk factors, increase your risk by 200 or 300 fold of dying from extreme heat. So, with, you know, with, you know, it's also the city with the highest inflation in the country at more than 12% in June. Um, so you have this sort of convergence of factors, which are all, you know, which are all surrounded by the climate crisis. I mean, this is a city, this is a place that is getting hotter, um, breaking records 
every year. And I think really significant, um, as well as these sort of daytime highs of 115, 116 at the city seas, it's the nighttime temperatures. And you, you're probably feeling this yourself um, in, where, where you are, you know, but now I was there for a period in June where for almost, for more than two weeks, the temperature did not drop below 90 at night, right? Our, for our bodies to start recovering, um, it has to drop to below 80 because heat is cumulative, right? And so that sort of, you know, your body nearly really has a chance to recover. So I think the eye-catching temperatures in places like Phoenix, but all over the country are these sort of daytime highs, which are obviously incredibly dangerous and worrisome. But it's these nighttime lows that are really worth keeping an eye on as well. And, you know, somewhere like Phoenix, the nighttime temperatures have increased in at twice the speed as the daytime temperatures. That's over 30 years of data, you know. So you have, you know, and that's just one example, right? And, you know, and like I said, Phoenix is a place where most people do have air conditioning, yet the death toll is growing every year. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, 650 people in two years dying of extreme heat um, in America, the richest country in the world. Um, so, um, you know, you, we can only just, you know, all the people, you know, you can imagine when um, India and Pakistan had these crazy springtime um, heat waves this year. I mean, how many excess deaths are they likely to have? You know, I mean, we've no idea. Um, but yeah, it's it's really, really scary. Yeah, it sounds absolutely terrifying. And that just seemed to be one big ad for don't go to Phoenix. But the reality is, <laughs> The heat is going everywhere, we still can't avoid it. And it's also very scary, this thought that even at night, when you would expect things to calm down and for it to cool down, yeah. it's not happening. Even in a area that I would think is more desert friendly, like Arizona, where you would expect it to be cooler at night. Well, this is, you know, a significant part of that, you know, the issue there is this urban heat island effect you know, um, which we know has occurred in cities across the US and really does impact um, black and brown communities far more because of uh, racist housing policies and, um, you know, construct, you know, environmental justice sort of policies over the over the years. But because you have so much concrete and asphalt, basically, the heat just that retains the heat during the day and then it just lets it out very slowly at night. When you cut down vegetation, um, that's what you get. And you replace it with concrete, that's what happens, right? And so one of the interesting things they're doing in Phoenix is they do have the the, in the world's first ever extreme heat team. And one of their sort of long-term sort of goals and plans to try and cool the whole city down is to increase the canopy cover, which has just been destroyed over the last 50, 60 years. Wow, well, I'm glad that they have some plan in mind because it sounds like people are um, they're being impacted to the point of death. I know you had noted in your article that so far this year, 1,215 emergency calls have been designated by dispatch as heat related there. And I'm wondering, uh, since again, heat, it seems to be rising everywhere in terms of numbers. Is there any kind of approach that uh, a lot of communities are turning to regardless of maybe the resources and funds they have? You mentioned what they're doing in Phoenix by trying to replace the can canopy there and I'm guessing creating more shade. Are, uh, what are you hearing about the other approaches other cities are taking? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I mean, Phoenix is actually a lot, you know, further forward than other cities, you know, because it's been so hot for so long. Um, I think it's really difficult, you know, if you've got, you know, last year, the hottest place in the world, 
at one point with British Columbia in Canada, right? How do you plan for that? How, you know, they had this crazy heat dome and hundreds of people died in the Pacific Northwest in British Columbia. I mean, it's very hard to plan for that in a region where very rarely does it even get to 90, right? How do you plan for these sort of um, 100 plus sort of temperatures? I think that, um, you know, I think there is a real lack of data. Um, and I think there is an effort by, um, you know, the Department of Health and um, the CDC to improve recording and monitoring of data and in real time. You know, there's quite a lot of work going into that since, you know, under the Biden administration. So that actually um, health, you know, like ER, you know, ERs and sort of doctors and nurses and emergency services know very quickly what's happening. You know, that, you know, last week um, when it got to this temperature, you had this rising cause. It will, ha- you know, informing people will make people bet more aware, I think. Um, um, I think some of the sort of stuff, some of the sort of provisions in the new climate bill, which Biden signed today, um, in the long term will help. You know, there are there is money there for residents, um, especially low income households, to get rebates and some credits on on sort of en- more energy efficient appliances and things like heat pumps for cooling and as well as for heating. So I think that can help. But I think really just um, you know we've got to we've got to stop the temperature getting hotter. You know, I mean at the moment it's going completely the wrong direction, right? And so um, we have to stop the temperature rising. And then in all you know, and I think in some places where where there isn't really hot temperatures all of the time, I think cities will start to look at sort of like emergency resilience hubs. You know, like community centres, places like that. So when there's a power outage, for example, like we saw in Texas with the big freeze last year, but and which you know Texas was also very close to seeing black rolling blackouts this year because of heat. Places that people can go when powers get when power gets cut out, you know, that have generators or that are solar powered or have a mix of sort of you know energy sources that people do have places to go and cool down because. Heat deaths are 100% avoidable. These are preventable deaths, right? And um, and so, um, but I think I think it's getting hotter far faster when cities are getting prepared, you know. And I, you know, um, and so hopefully, this new sort of legislation, this new money, will go to building some resilience in some of the worst worst affected communities. Indeed, hopefully that is the case because as we are gonna see that it's a lot of marginalized groups, uh, individuals who can't necessarily afford uh, particular means, uh, who can't necessarily shelter themselves or have access to AC or also being able to pay the bills when the um, you know when the electricity goes up because you're running the air conditioning for so long, it's it's a really scary thing. And the reality is that we need to push back against climate change and we need to confront it. And so definitely hoping that this new act that Biden signed helps start the process. Thank you so so much for joining us, Nina, and also for being such an insightful insightful guest. Can you please tell the viewers where they can read more of your work and find out more about you? Sure. Um, so I write for The Guardian. You can just um, look me up on The Guardian page and you'll see all my reporting. And also I'm um, at Nina Lakani on Twitter where I post all my articles. Fantastic. That's Nina Lakani, senior reporter, climate justice for The Guardian. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Yeah.
Welcome back to the conversation. It is Adrian Lawrence. And I know that on Tuesday, there were a few primaries going on, and there are a lot of things to do and prepare for when it comes to the midterms. And fortunately, I have the AAPI Victory Alliance Executive Director, Varun Nakor, joining us today to explain the work the Democrats have cut out for them. Thanks for joining us, Varun. Thank you for having me again. Yes, so, oh, so much chatter, so much ado. Biden passed the historic act, or at least he signed it in. It seems that the Dems are looking pretty good, but they have their work cut out for them. Where would you start? Well, better late than never. We got it passed in the nick of time. You know, we are in the dog days of August, and and you're absolutely right. We have two primaries today that we're keeping in our our eye out. Uh, on specifically because right we've seen what happened in Kansas two weeks ago with the the historic turnout of progressives and and women and you know uh, folks of all stripes that really kind of shocked the system in terms of you know beating back on uh, restrictions on uh, you know Roe versus Wade abortion rights abortion health care so that is a good bellwether and then a week later we saw some special elections. That also gave us some positive indications of how November could end up unfolding from the perspective of electoral sort of tailwinds. And tonight might be further indications of what we might see. And what we are looking for specifically tonight are are Democrats overperforming? You know, there's a special election in Alaska. God help us if Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin wins that that special election. We do not need her on the national landscape. And then, of course, we're all dreading, of course, what might happen to our our favorite Republican Mary Cheney in Wyoming. So, a lot to uncover for tonight, and maybe look at see how well November may shape up for us on the left. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting uh, the prospect of Palin being involved in the federal arena. Uh, you know, as she chose before, trying to go for the vice president, and I actually would argue that that's what she's also vying for here to some extent in terms of riding on Trump's coattails. But I'm sure she'd have to fight Marjorie Taylor Greene for that spot, um, and I'm sure that would be entertaining. But in terms of all the entertainment that is going on um, when it comes to things the Dems have lined up for them that a lot of people are still waiting resolution on. For example, student loans, kind of where do things stand with the Dems and what they plan to do to win over those of us who aren't there yet? That's that's a great question. I, I would say that you know there are not the investments that we needed in the climate, right? I think that makes a lot of core progressives happy. Uh, but we just, you're right, we didn't get the wins that we had wanted. I, I would say that we very much got behind the uh, uh, behind the curve, if you will, on the expectations game. And politics is frankly a lot about expectations. I think we overpromised a lot to um, our side after Biden got elected and after we had uh, won the Senate. And, uh, you know, it, it's still, I think, Kind of creating some challenges for us as how we, as to how we message to our own side about what we can realistically get done in a, such a partisan environment, such a divided Congress. But that being said, I have not seen much on student loans. I've 
heard a lot of maneuvering apparently going on. I don't think they've settled on uh, on anything, frankly. And at the end of the day, right, you know, uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, at least for the next several months, are going to be deciding for all Democrats whether something like this gets passed or not. Not optimistic at this stage, but at least in terms of the overall Senate makeup, I mean, we have some doozies, if you will, of Senate races coming up with just really crazy folks, Dr. Oz and many others who are running, not doing a very good job and things are looking okay for us. I will feel a little bit more optimistic if the current polling on the Senate maps around the country hold after Labor Day. Typically that's when I think a lot of folks like me look at and see if things are, trends are solidifying, if they're continuing, are they reverting, that sort of thing. Yes, and it should be very interesting to watch. And I know that in your work, you specializing in uplifting the voices and addressing the issues that concern the AAPI community, that's Asian American Pacific Islander. And so in terms of the demographic really being reached, it seems that candidates aren't necessarily getting involved or reaching out. They're, I don't think they're doing as good of a job as they frankly did even in 2020, right? And. Uh, and how do we know that, right? I think one of the main ways we know that is where are investments occurring, uh, and we don't see much. I mean, I think in, in some measure, the DCCC, the campaign arm uh, that's trying to um, maintain the uh, House of Representatives on the Democratic side, they uh, announced this six, this seven-figure uh, uh, API media plan, right? So we know it's a million dollars. And I, I sort of scratch my head thinking you're spending a million dollars trying to reach 23 million APIs in this country. Uh, that's maybe 25 cents a person. It's, it's pennies on where it needs to be. Please add another zero at the end of that uh, because that I think barely even gets us into the ballpark, 10 million, right? And, and so we know that they're not making the investments that they need to. And yet our people are still feeling somewhat motivated, right? We have the threat of Donald Trump, uh, you know, sort of staring at us. Still, unfortunately, we have the uh, exacerbated rhetoric from the right uh, against not only our community but all people of color. Uh, that is still ratcheting up the hate and violence, um, right? You know, geared towards our community and many others. So we have not seen sort of a downtick, frankly, in. The uh, hate and violence, it's still happening. And it's gonna continue as long as we've got these ultra right wing MAGA loving um, you know, folks on the right who they themselves, uh, they realize that they know they're doing this and yet it's not stopped them in the least. So we have to do a lot more. We have to invest a lot more uh, into our community. We have to get more progressives elected uh, to be the front lines and and frankly, send a signal to the right that not only won't this be tolerated, but there's going to be consequences if you continue to spew out this hate, which will lead to the further violence even. Yeah, 
without a doubt. And that's something that I would like to think more people would fully appreciate, particularly coming out of, hopefully coming out of this pandemic, where we saw the numbers and attacks against um, Asian Americans, uh, um, particularly East Asians here. And it just seems to be something that is rising. And so not to necessarily engage a demographic that uh, has been on the receiving end of considerable hate just seems like uh, it seems like a lost opportunity uh, to ensure that you can meet people's needs. And it seems like candidates, uh, as I think you've noted at some point, they really have to engage people, Asian Americans uh, beyond crime and education. You're absolutely right. And and I, I wanna maybe hone in on guns and how the right and specifically the NRA and also the NSSF, the National um, NSF, NSSF is the, the lobby for the gun industry in this country, right? And so what they have done with is, is extremely vile because they know themselves that there is a lot of fear in API communities all around the country. They are actively marketing uh, the selling of guns to our community like they've never done before. So just think about the vileness of this, right? So the right spews this hate and this vicious rhetoric. We get afraid because their spewing of hate is leading to acts of violence against our community. Our community then reacts by purchasing guns because we're being directly marketed to thinking that somehow guns are making them safer when in fact all the stats show that it really doesn't. Suicide rates grow exponentially when there's a gun in the household. We doubt very much, for example, that training is occurring on the purchase of these guns. And so we've now seen record levels of gun purchases from the AAPI community, which is then going to lead to a whole host of unfortunate acts of accidental death uh, you know, and and suicide, and so this is just we we need to kind of stop this cycle and call it out for what it is, and this is the profiting off of hate in our country, and we're not the only community facing this right now, but it absolutely has to be called out in every way, shape, and form because we've got to put a stop to this. Absolutely, and the fear mongering, and and you're absolutely right about. Kind of this upshot of having people invest in these guns, and then it creates even more significant problems from there. And it all kind of stemmed from um, these fears that have been created and stoked by, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the right. And it's a very scary thing. And I'd like to think that there are some representatives out there who are investing in change and addressing these issues. Would you say that anyone out there um, on the left is doing a pretty good job? In, in terms of gun violence prevention awareness? Well, in terms of addressing the needs of the AAPI community. I, I feel like we're on an island of our own, unfortunately. Um, and and I think uh, in large measure, most AAPI groups are still very underfunded. We've come, you know, we're newer on the scene, frankly, politically, right? We we didn't really participate. We didn't really vote much until like Donald Trump got elected and uh, then I think we started to get more uh, engaged civically all around the country. But even though there are now more organizations around the country than ever before, you would think that uh, we would see exponential investment, especially considering the fact that our community 
came out to vote in record numbers, something I spoke about on your program a while, uh, while back, which is we, we came out in record numbers in 2020. There was a 47% increase in voting between 16 and 20, right? This has never happened before in the history of our country where any one demographic has increased their vote share. And so we need to see commensurate investments in our communities. Unfortunately, it's not there yet. Uh, but all we can do is try to preach and 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 uh, um, hopefully we'll be able to turn this tide around. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for joining us. That's Varun Nakor, AAPI Victory Alliance Executive Director. Thank you so much.